This is the Skate Podcast on WEEI.com. Bobby Orr, behind the net to Sanderson, Bobby Orr! For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Talking Bruins and NHL. Sure, old-time hockey. Like Eddie Shore. With writer and producer Brian DeFelice. Brian DeFelice is an emerging talent. Bridget Prue. Yeah, he's a little bit on the hot seat. Burn him! And WEEI.com Bruins writer Scott McLaughlin. Great Scott! Lace him up for some bees talk right now. I'm not gonna f***ing It's the Skate Pod on WEEI. Welcome into episode 88 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Pru and Scott McLaughlin. We've got plenty to talk about, both good and bad, Bruins-related. But before we do, we want to welcome in our, our guest. He uh, covers the NHL for Bally Sports, Pete Blackburn. Pete, what's going on, man? Hey, how are you guys? Thanks for having me. Not, not great after last night's Bruins game, but Pete, do you know uh, the last time you were on either Skate Podcast or Sunday Skate, the whole skate property? Uh, I don't. I I feel like it was probably during the playoffs, either like last year or the year before. Yeah, so it, it might have been. Well, so it was. It wasn't while we had skate pod, and there was no Sunday skate last year. But I know you were on. I think it was the last episode of Sunday Skate just before the pandemic shut everything down. It was like March eighth, twenty twenty. Was that was that like we were supposed to? reboot it kind of and there was like one or two episodes and then it just shut yeah. down yeah, yeah that sounds about right <laughs> yeah um so i was thinking you know we've uh you know we we're gonna have you on at some point anyways and i figured uh first game against toronto in a while was a good time to do it because uh you have a, a lengthy history with toronto fans uh especially on on twitter correct um you know, I was thinking, like, look, Bruins are on the rise. Leafs have been struggling. Mm-hmm. Crack some good Toronto jokes and, you know. Listen, I almost escaped. I almost escaped this game without without any controversy, without any sort of nonsense happening. I, I was shocked that the Leafs kicked the crap out of the Bruins, essentially, and I didn't get anything on Twitter. Like, people were generally pretty nice they were just like oh it's good to get one finally against you and then i wake up this morning and somebody from toronto is saying that taylor hall is the new todd bertuzzi <laughs> what are we doing here so they just they slept on that and then woke up this morning and they decided to to compare it to like the worst act of violence in the history of the league yeah i saw like i saw one person tweet something like that last night but it was like a no one and it kind of got ignored. Like it, I think it was like one person quote tweeted it type thing. But yeah, then this morning it's like multiple, like numerous Toronto fans making the comparison. So like a couple media types, like tweet stuff like that. It's like, what, what is happening? And usually, then, usually something like that happens and people will like come out immediately with their hot takes and out like over the top reactions and some somehow, some way, Toronto fans slash media sat on it overnight and then woke up. And I don't know if it was because Taylor Hall was only fine and not suspended, but they sat oh, on I, it overnight and then just went off the walls this morning. I think it was because originally it didn't even look that bad. And then the fact that uh, Labushkin didn't come back, which I mean, it kind of just looked like what you get at the end of any other scrum. It, it, it 
honestly looked like it was going to be matching penalties. And then all of a sudden, you know, Labushkin has to be helped off the ice. And and then all of a sudden they were like, they probably watched it a few times on Twitter. And then they were like, oh, you know what? This is just like when I watched well, it back in the day. <laughs> there's, there's a few there's a few problems. Number one, I think uh, Maple Leafs fans, first of all, they've taken the title from Canadians fans from the 2010s about being, you know, overdramatic with shit. But number two, they compared it to Todd Bertuzzi. Todd Bertuzzi trailed more around the ice, premeditated by the way, and then drove his head into the ice. Completely different. Yeah, like, I I mean, I guess I would have been, I would have kind of understood if they gave him, like, a game or two just because, you know, whatever. Like, he does kind of smack him upside the head, and it's from behind. I, you know, Labushkin's probably not expecting it. But, yeah, like, Pete, I think you tweet, tweeted, it was like, the, the bad part of the Bertuzzi thing isn't, one, the punch is far more forceful, but two, like Brian just mentioned, it's driving him into the ice. It's yeah. not even uh, not even close to a comparison. Yeah, like I have I have no problem if you're gonna if you want to call for like a game or two because I, th- I think like under the rule book, if it's classified as a sucker punch on an unsuspecting opponent, uh, it, it's a, supposed to be a match penalty, and with a match penalty, it automatically goes to either either like an automatic suspension or a review for a suspension. And so, like, if that's the case, and Taylor Hall gets a game or two for that, I think it's like it's it's a little harsh, but like it's it's by the rule book, and I think that that's fine, whatever. But to immediately jump to like the most egregious sucker punch in the history of the sport, that was again also followed by a pile driver that broke a guy's neck. Come, let's come on. Yeah, and I think part of it is like they're also upset that. Austin Matthews got suspended two games for cross-checking someone in the head, which they insist he cross-checked him in the shoulder and his stick just happened to slide up into the guy's head. It's almost like they're biased. (laughs) Yeah, almost. But yeah, it's like, I mean, look, there's no, we know there's no consistency with player safety, but that one was, it was never going to be any sort of lengthy suspension. Hall has no history. Um, you know, like I would compare it to like the punch that uh Larkin. Uh, no, it's well. There's that one. There was also who punched Latang? Was it um Pacioretty? I don't remember that one. It gave him like a, it was kind of like a rapid punch to the back of the helmet, and Latang like dropped to a knee type thing. But yeah, but and then like that got nothing. There wasn't even a fine for that. So yeah, spin the wheel. Yeah. yeah. All right, so uh, yeah. how about – so the game itself is total disaster for the Bruins, down 6-1 after two periods, uh, you know, claw back enough to make it 6-4, gets at least mildly interesting late in the third, but really complete reversal from what we what we were thinking of, about both of these teams because Bruins were hottest team in the league coming in. Maple Leafs have been a 500 team for the last month and a half weren't getting goaltending. Uh, the Toronto Stars writing columns about how the Maple Leafs can't let Jeremy Swayman get his swagger. They're, like, fearing he's the next two Garask already. And the game just goes complete opposite of probably what we would have predicted. So does that does that change what we think of either team, of, of both teams, or just chalk it up as, like, one, you know, weird off night? 
For me, I, I'm not. I'm not super worried. Like I think the Bruins played 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 terribly for about 40 minutes, at least 45, 50 minutes, maybe. Um, and like they had bad luck uh, on top of playing like crap. I mean, they hit what three posts uh, like in the first 20, 30 minutes. Uh, you know, a couple of those go differently, and you're talking about maybe a different game. But they also did play like crap, and I don't expect that. Uh, I don't expect that to be the norm moving forward. Um, you know, it, it, it was a disheartening game, I would say, because like you did, you chase Morazic out of the game, or at least not chase him out of the game, but he got hurt and you come in with a, uh, you know, maybe that helps the Maple Leafs, honestly, Morazic <laughs> leaving the game. Uh, but like, you know, you have a cold backup that comes in, you can't really do much damage on him. You kind of like start falling apart all over the place. Uh, I was more concerned with how, how they came undone mentally, uh, especially towards the end of that, like second period, Marshan getting a 10 minute misconduct going after Tavares and just like, compl- I don't know what happened there, but he like blew a gasket on Tavares and, and uh, took himself out of the game. So, well, yeah. And then they showed on, they showed on the replay after they came back in the intermission, him yelling at the refs, like, yeah. fuck you, fuck you. So yeah, I don't know what happened there, but like that, uh, them coming undone mentally was more concerning for me, uh, and and it was weird because like the the Leafs don't don't seem to ever like push the Bruins around, and the, like the Bruins are the ones that lose their heads. So like performance wise, I expect the Bruins to be better, but I do want to see more like ha- keep themselves in the game a bit more, even when it's six one. Yeah, I. I- the thing that, you know, surprised me the most was that Toronto didn't seem to be nearly as soft as, you know, I thought they were going to be. Um, you know, the last couple of months, they've been giving up a lot of goals and kind of felt like, oh, it's the same old, same old Leafs. But, you know, they actually do have some more sandpaper and grit. So if you're going to beat them this time around, you know, assuming they get matched up in the playoffs, then goaltending will probably be their uh, their downfall. But what, what, what annoyed me the most is that it seemed like the Bruins just weren't ready to go when it was, such, it was built as such a big game. So, you know, that was alarming to me, but... You know, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, they've been so good over the last few months. It, you know, it happens. But, you know, I do have some questions going forward in the playoffs, like who's your third D pair, right? And we don't know the answer yet. There's some trial and error to go here, probably starting with the next game. But um, at the very least, you know, they, they, they didn't pack it in like they had earlier in the year against, you know, Carolina or whomever else they may have sucked against. But, yeah, kind of chalk it up. But it's definitely, a, you know, a sour taste in your mouth after playing so well that they were supposed to kind of, you know, show off, you know, how good they've been since, uh, you know, acquiring Lindholm uh, specifically. Yeah, and they kind of got they kind of got hit early. So they end up going down by two after the first period and it just kind of seemed like that completely changed their their how they looked at things mentally and there was a few key defensive mistakes. Clifton had one on the first goal. Carlo misplayed um one of the sec- one of the other goals in the first period um pinching kind of in the wrong way. And then losing his guy a little bit. So the the defense was really not sharp to start. And I don't think that that is, I watched the whole game just thinking this is not what it's going to look like in the playoffs. And if this was a playoff game, people would be losing their mind in Boston right now. And because, especially because people have been kind of taking a, people in Boston take a lap every time Toronto comes into town, just because they, they think that, oh, you know, the history with Toronto, plenty of things to make fun of with their fans and, and, some of the results that they've had in the playoffs. And then all of a sudden they come in and, and smack the Bruins a little bit. And uh, so Scott didn't get to do his victory lap on, on Twitter um, just a little bit this morning, but 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think this is going to be what a playoff series would look like at all between the two teams. It was a weirdly reft game. It's had a weird start. Guys weren't sharp in the beginning. I would not expect a playoff series to have a game like this in it. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, so, yeah, go ahead, Pete. I was just gonna say, like, yeah, I mean, like the the big thing last night was just you know they they kept shooting themselves in the foot. Like the, the game was getting away from them a, a little bit. And then you have, you know, like they, they just kept throwing pucks into skates, like they turning the puck over. Like you cannot give, especially right now, like that Marner and Matthews combination has been like disgusting over the past two months. Uh, and, you know, Marner is insane right now. He's averaging like you know, two points a game over like the last 30 plus games which is outrageous. And so like you cannot, we all know that the Leafs are extremely dangerous up front. And if they're going to beat you, that's probably how they're going to beat you. You cannot give them free opportunities. And like the game seemed to be getting away from the Bruins a little bit. And they continue to give those guys opportunities to just make it worse. And even some that they didn't score on, they had that two on O where Marner just decided to make an extra pass. And it that should have probably been another goal that they had. And, you know, just kind of ended up being a barn burner. But to talk about, like, kind of the bad luck or maybe just a bad shot selection, Clifton's shot um, goes right off Kerfoot's foot the, the other way for a breakaway, and he just scores on that. I think that was the third goal um, that made it 3-1. to one. So that – I don't know if you want to call that a unlucky bounce or whatnot, I, but – I wouldn't let him off the hook. And, by the way, Bruce Cassidy didn't let, let him off the hook either. Like, Kerfoot's standing right in, right in front of him, and Clifton – just like tease it up and it's almost like he's just trying to shoot it through him. Like he had, he had other options. He had time to settle that, settle that down, or at least like try to just get it down low to a stick or something. And instead he just tries to fire it like right through Kerfoot and it just hits him. I mean, he's standing right in front of him. So, and it's, you know, it's ironic because I think, I think it was Saturday Cassidy had praised Clifton for being much better offensively and much better getting a shot through. And then he does that and leads to a, to a breakaway goal. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the, the two on O that was really like the first bad play we've seen from Hampus Lindholm in three games now with the Bruins, where I don't know if he just thought, you know, the rotation was going somewhere else, but drop passes to no one and goes the other way. Um, you know, I guess that kind of transitions us into, uh, starting with Lindholm and how well he was playing before that and how good this team had looked in in the first two games post-trade deadline. Um, Pete, what what do you think of the Lindholm acquisition, how he's looked so far, and, you know, is that the kind of move that elevates the Bruins into, like, the elite of the NHL and puts them up there with – you know, your Tampa, Florida, Carolina. I think it certainly gives you a better chance to hang with those guys, especially in the playoffs where like, it's okay. Like you obviously would like to have three strong defensive pairs, but if you've only got two, we did see last year that two defensive pairs can essentially take you to this Stanley cup final. Uh, so like, you know, it, it, it elevates them to, I think like a new tier of competitor. And I, I like the move for that reason. Like if you're, they obviously gave up a lot. Um, and they didn't end up doing, they didn't end up with like a follow-up move, which kind of bothered me. Like they seemed like they paid a little extra 
to get that flexibility to then maybe go out and get a forward, which never happened. Bothered me a little bit, but, you know, I'm okay with them taking a big swing there. Number one, because it's not a rental. Um, you know, it's a guy who helps you now, but also helps you in the future with that, with the extension now in place. The eight-year extension does worry me a little bit. Like, it seems like down the line that could be something that it doesn't age super well. But I think it's worth taking a shot now. Like, if you're not going to get a Chikrin, Lindholm is probably, like, the next best guy that you could go out and, and snag. And I think, like, you know, he almost set the bar too high for himself over his first few games because I don't think that he's as great as he looked through the first few games. Uh, like, he was he's, – he's a really, really good player, but he was – the impact that he had over the first couple of games was just outrageous. He was doing everything and just like a super sound, uh, super sound guy. Um, so like, I mean, like I think that he's going to make a big difference, but I don't, I don't know if he's like who he made himself out to be over the fir- first few games. That's all I'll say. Yeah. I, I would second that. I mean, he, like Pete said, he was doing everything right. He was closing his gaps. He was, he was making the right reads. You know, he was, um, just everything about him, his size, his reach, you know, he was, you know, getting shots through to the net. Um, but, you know, an impossible standard he set, yeah, maybe a little bit. But, uh, you know, one guy I look to on the back end that if the Bruins want to go far and, you know, he needs to elevate his play to where he can is Brandon Carlo. I think, you know, somebody tweeted out the other day a video of him um, back against Columbus in 19 in Game 5. He closed in on, on Panarin and set Pashnak down and, and Marchand. And, you know, if, if that's how Brandon Carlo plays for you down a stretch and in the playoffs then you know then 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 yeah you have a top three decor in the east in my opinion but um you know so the addition of Lindholm certainly you know on paper puts him there but now it's about you know can these guys play to their ceiling when it matters the most and um yeah I mean I thought Lindholm had a a tough night last night everybody did I also think that when you get to a new team that you, you play a little free and I think that you know sometimes when you start to learn the systems that's when you overthink a little bit now so maybe you're seeing that a little bit with Lindholm um Whereas maybe the first few games he was just going out going out there to play, um, but you know, as far as the third pair goes, you know, it looks like you know Scott. I don't know if you were at the press conference, but it looks like they're getting uh, your first look at Josh Brown uh, in the next game and and Mike Riley. I mean, what do you think we can expect out of that pair? Yeah, that's. It seems like that's probably what Cassidy's going to go with because he's talked about wanting to get both of them in anyways. Now, what's interesting is you know Riley and Brown have been practicing together. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's that two for two swap where they just come in and Forbord and Clifton both sit. But at some point, they're also going to want to get Riley on the right side of the third pair next to Forbord. So that's also an option. Um, but yeah, I mean, Josh Brown, you know, I don't think he's going to be anything more than your eighth or ninth defenseman. Uh, you know, he's perfectly fine as just like a defensive physical guy, but he's not. It's not really going to be a difference maker. He's depth in case you get down that far in, in your lineup. Uh, but you still have to get him into games. Like you still want to see what, what he can do. And you only have 16 games left. So it's going to have to happen at some point, And it could very well be Thursday night. Uh, I think Riley and Brown, I don't think played much together in Ottawa. Riley was pretty much always with Artem Zub up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, they've been practicing together. You see, like, what, how they could fit together. Riley as the mobile puck mover. Uh, Brown as the 
physical stay-at-home guy. So we'll see. Certainly, certainly Clifton can afford to sit down for a game. We've seen in the past where he gets benched, sits a game or two, and comes back better, kind of, you know, more settled, focused. So now wouldn't be a bad time for that. Uh, I would never have a problem sitting forward. Uh, Cassidy seems to like him a lot more than most. And I guess I get it to an extent. You know, he brings he brings some, you know, defensive play to that pairing. He's obviously a huge part of their penalty kill. But, you know, I don't I don't believe he's been healthy scratch this season. So can certainly see that now. Um but yeah, you know, on the second like Carlo, I thought he'd been playing much better recently. And last night was really kind of like the first rough game in a while. So, you know, let's see if he get bounces right back. Him and Grizzly have been good together for a while now. So, you know, see see if uh keep them together, keep them in there, and see if they bounce back. Well, my my question for Pete on that same in that same vein is were you surprised with the fact they went they didn't take Forbert or Clifton out of the lineup and Riley was the guy that was the the odd man out? I mean, I think that the Riley has a higher ceiling than like a Forbert, but like I also recognize that like Scott said, I think that uh Cassidy seems to like what he brings to that group more than more than probably most of us do. Um, and it is sort of like that element that you do want, especially uh, when it comes to playoff time, like Forbert is kind of the guy that brings a little bit more sandpaper than a, than than like Riley would. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that they're going to have to start rotating those guys in and out and seeing what works best and, you know, what, what sort of third pairing is going to give you the – the most effective dynamic or at least discover what dynamic you're going to get from those combinations as you head into the playoffs. Cause the playoffs is not the time that you want to be experimenting with those pairings. So figure it out now, get those guys in and out of the mix and then make your decisions. Cause I, I think that like once the playoffs come, you're probably going to see some, some guys in and out uh, over the course of a series, depending on what they feel like they need on the back end. Yeah. yeah, like it depends on, yeah, like you said, like what, how does he want to use that pairing? Because when they first got Lindholm, my thinking was, you know, it'll be it'd be great to move Riley down, have Grizz, you know, Grizzly on your second pair, Riley on your third, and those guys can like feast on easier matchups that they're going to see lower in the lineup rather than having to deal with the opponent's top line every night, but. You know, think back to like last postseason, especially in the Washington series, whether it was Kevin Miller before he got hurt, Lozon, Clifton, like whoever was in in that bottom pair mix, that line was just getting like all defensive zone starts, was facing one of Washington's top two lines. And yeah, they're getting buried like in terms of possession and shot attempts. Surviving. But they were keeping the the Capitals to the outside. And, like, you'll take that if that's their role and that frees up everyone else. So if you're thinking of something like that, then, yeah, it's going to be Forboard and Clifton because that's not going to be the game that you want Mike Riley playing. Right. And, like, that that sometimes is fine. (laughs) Like, you can send out a pairing out there to just get steamrolled and and essentially, like, run over and and hammed into their own end but if they're not getting beat and the puck is not ending up in the back of the net 
you can consider that a win because then you are freeing up the guys ahead of them and you're getting favorable matchups and then you have a better opportunity to take advantage and put the buck in the back of their net. Like that really is okay if it's not killing you. Yeah, and, and you know, we talked about it when they first got Lindholm and you know, like like we said earlier the first couple games, I mean, he was he was Bobby Orr out there, right? So you were you were like, wow, if, if he and McAvoy are together, they're unstoppable. But, you know, there's also that 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 thought where it's similar to the, the forwards, right? Like you, you have Bergeron and Martian on a line, and then you have Pashnak and Hall on a line. So, you know, to your opponent, well, who do you want to defend, right? So on the back end, you, if you have one pair out there and it's McAvoy, the next pair is Lindholm. It just makes it that much tougher for, for opposing uh, coaches to put their best lines out. Um, and then, yeah, as far as the bottom pair, guys, depending on matchup and injuries, like you guys said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be um, you know, mix and match. But I guess my question to you guys, you know, because it's not all bad, right? The Maple Leafs game sucked, but... You know, they played really well against Tampa, got the win, smoked the Islanders, um, and it's been more of that, more you know, over the last few months. So I guess my question to the class would be this. If you're the Bruins' first-round matchup with such a stacked Eastern Conference, okay, it's kind of pick your battle, right? Pick your poison. Who do you guys feel, I guess people start with you, who do you, who do you guys feel the Bruins match up best with and worst with in the first round? I mean, I... I think it's, it's it doesn't really matter that much to me. Like I I would love to see the Leafs in the in the first round just like for the memes, and also I think that they can beat them. Um, but I I, it was I think, more fun against the Leafs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like if if the Leafs are going to lose in the first round again, I want it to be at the hands of the Bruins, uh, just for just for the jokes and just just having another year of like supremacy over the over Toronto would be amazing. But I mean, I, when I look at the, like the Eastern conference, you're not going to draw a favorable matchup unless you're finishing in like the one spot. And that's not going to happen for the Bruins. Like Florida, Tampa, Toronto, Carolina are all worth fearing. And they, they're, I think, any of those teams could beat the Bruins. And I would also say that, like, I think that, you know, with the exception of Florida, I think the Bruins would have a really tough time beating Florida. I'm more faithful or I have more confidence this year that the Bruins could give Tampa a really good series. Um, And like years past, I wouldn't be in that camp, but you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to spend too much time stressing over where they finish because I think it's going to be a tough road no matter what. Now, how do you think they pair up with Tampa considering, you know, say Swayman is playing at his best? Um, obviously, that helps in any series, but I feel like Tampa, they they kind of don't match up as well against the Bruins with Swayman in. Um, there's a few different looks on the team than when they've played Tampa in the past. Uh, could Swayman really be the difference in a series like that? I don't know if Swayman's going to like outduel a Vasilevsky over the course of a seven game series. I think it would more come down to like, I, I think the Bruins depth, like, especially with that third, if that third line is going and, and making a difference, I think the Bruins for like the first time in, in several years are as deep or potentially deeper than, than Tampa. Obviously Tampa made some, upgrades at the trade deadline for that third line with Hagel. Um, And so like, I I think we'll have to see what that looks like down the stretch for Tampa, but like they took some big hits this past off season and their depth was really, really what put them over the edge. They obviously still have 
like the the key organizational pillars that you know, like on the back end with Hedman and obviously like up front with Stamkos, Point, Kucherov, and then in net with with Vasilevsky, like they they have as many individual dif- difference makers as any other team in the league. But but like I, I think that this year the gap is a little bit closer between the Bruins and the Lightning in terms of like depth and sandpaper. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. Like, you know, and even with the upgrades that Tampa made, just the fact that the Bruins have the third line going the way it has, like, you know, you go back to to like 2020 and it's, you know, the Bruins tried to dress at the trade deadline and obviously Kasha and Richie did just did not even come close to what Tampa got from, from Coleman and uh, Goodrow. And like, that was such a huge difference in that series. And yeah, if you have this third line going the way that it's going now, it's, it at least evens that up. And, you know, Tampa so far, I think, has actually, or at least against the Bruins, played Hagel in the top six, and it was Sorelli that they dropped down. And, you know, Sorelli's having a little bit of a down year compared to past years. So I still think, you know, even with the Lightning improving in that respect at the trade deadline, I still think the Bruins are, like, there. Like, they're, you know, close to on par. Um, and I like uh, the Bruins' decor – you know, if guys are going well, like you know, right, like if Carlo doesn't fall apart, if your third pairing's fine, I think the Bruins have as good of a decor as anyone, and that includes Tampa. Um, I'm with you. I think Florida probably looks like the toughest matchup on paper, but that changes if Ekblad's not going to be back for the first round. Like, you know, if if you're going to have to go through Florida at some point, anyways, then if Ekblad ends up missing a series or most of a first-round series, you prefer to kind of just get that out of the way then and, um, you know, try to get them without Ekblad. But I prefer somebody else get them uh, out of the way first and maybe either beat them or beat the hell out of them heading into a second-round series. Yeah, F- Florida-Tampa series would be good. Like, maybe they can go at it like they did last year. That was just – that series was, like, hellish. Um and it's I, worth it's worth noting where where everything stands right now because it looks like Carolina and Florida are gonna try to are gonna be the ones battling it out for that top like that number one seed in the conference and then so as it is right now the Bruins are in the wild card again behind Toronto and Tampa which it looks like that'll kind of be that'll rotating change. as the year as the year comes to a close but as of right now you either have to play if you're in the wild card you either have to play Carolina or Florida. And it's either one of those is going to be a tough matchup. I still think before Brian gets a chance to answer that Toronto is the best draw for the Bruins. Yeah, yeah I, I agree just because of goaltending. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think what, what Tuesday night showed is that the Leafs aren't going to be a pushover and like there's some real fight there. And obviously we know how great Matthews and Monner are, um, especially in, you know, they have other guys beyond that. And, but, and that's going to be a series you need to be disciplined in because you do not want to give those guys a chance on the power play. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, just the goaltending alone. Like, is it possible that Morazic or Campbell, when he comes back, or Shalgren gets hot? It's always any goalie at this level is capable of getting hot for a seven game series. But you'd like your chances a heck of a lot more than yeah. facing Vasilevsky or even though you've beaten Freddie Anderson in the playoffs in the past, he's having. You know, if it weren't for Shesterkin, potentially a Vezina caliber season. Uh, Bobrovsky has 
had great seasons and great postseasons. He's also crapped the bed. So, you know, a little bit of pick him there. But yeah, just just because of the unproven goaltending in Toronto, you'd you'd want that because you'd that's the one where there's other series where you'd look at Swayman and think, okay, he can even this out. You know, you can potentially be even in goal, but that's the one where like you feel like you actually have a real advantage. Yeah, I, and, I feel and, bad, Brian. We just been like talking over Brian. <laughs> Brian, what are you? I'm listening. No, I'm 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 li- I'm listening. Go go ahead. <laughs> All right. I also think like just even if even if uh, like Campbell or Mrazek plays okay in a series against Toronto, like the 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 weight of uncertainty with Toronto's goaltending situation, I do I do think like adds an element of uncomfortability for the Leafs because we like you you have to have a quick trigger in net when when it comes to goaltending like if it's, if it's not showing up and if you're already entering into the postseason with the mindset that you don't know who your guy is like the Bruins put like a few in on on the Leafs and you already have question marks on the bench as to whether when you pull them when how long you stick it out with them and that seems to have an effect on on playoff series when that is constantly a question yeah uh so i i think that the uh the goaltending in toronto is, is is a huge question like you guys said i still don't think they can really defend you know when when push comes to shove they also have ghosts and demons that they gotta you know overcome you know tampa bay the one thing they couldn't address the deadline was, you know, more stamina. I mean, you've, you've, you've won back-to-back cups, so, I mean, obviously it's going to have a toll on you if you try to go into a third or a three-peat. I think Florida, as talented as they are, I've said it in the past, like, you know, they've had such an easy goal of it this year. Like, how much adversity have they really faced? And, you know, what happens if they go down in a series? they got they got to learn how to win and lose in the playoffs as a team. Um, Carolina, same thing. I mean, Things go you know well for them in the regular season. We'll see if they can put it together. So I think every team has its has its you know hurdles they got to get over. But like Pete said earlier, I if you're the Bruins, you don't worry about that. You worry about you know where your game's at come come May second. Um, Pete, I have a I have a couple of questions for you before uh, we let you out of here. The first one is this: um, we don't like to think about this, but if this is Patrice's last year, how don't even I, I don't want to go even. there. I don't want to go there. But I, I I ask myself this, and I try to be optimistic, but like what? What do they do? If, what do they do if he if he does hang him up after this year? Uh you cry a lot for a good amount of time over the <laughs> summer. I I mean, like asking a team to replace Patrice Bergeron is an impossible task. Right after you already lost David Krejci. Right. Yeah. And so, like, it, it's an impossible task. There, there is Patrice Bergeron is a one of one. Like, you're not going to find somebody who does all the things that he does to uh, like in in one package. So like if, if you do lose him, you're obviously going to have to make a big splash down the middle somewhere, but you're, you're obviously, I think that you're going to have to like, it's going to have to be like filling his shoes by committee. I would, I would guess because like you're, you're not, again, you're not going to check all of those boxes because especially with like teams are not willing to give up players that do all the things that Patrice Bergeron does like so you know it's it's a huge setback if he decides to hang him up and I think that really 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 probably closes the Bruins window almost completely shut if he decides to hang them up yeah maybe the only possible 
thing that could save them is uh, if Krejci comes back after his one year in the Czech Republic. But I don't, I don't think that's particularly likely. But he, you know, Krejci still hasn't completely shut the door on returning to the NHL at some point. So, I mean, Krejci's just a mystery at this point. I'd be surprised if it was Bergeron's last year. I, I don't yeah, know. I so mean, it, who, but but you know, I'm yeah, just spitballing here. If, if it were, yeah, like, I think even the, if they win the cup, like, and he retires. May I think that maybe makes it more likely, and it also maybe makes it a little bit more palatable. Like if he were to go out on top, that'd be kind of kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. But I, I I don't know. Like I think he's he's been so good this year that it would be shocking to me if he decided to hang him up. And so one final thing that we we didn't really get a chance to talk to you about. Um, I'm more on the positive side, I guess. Um, well, it's hard to get. <laughs> more negative than that (laughs) i know i know exactly let's go back to a little bit more positive um three games out like the three first three games after the deadline just take just don't consider the toronto one for right now um eric holla has had just absolutely um you know he's brought his production up to a level that is comparable to where he was in the peak of his career uh seven points in those three games and you know the bruins were outscoring opponents 12 to seven and, and, you know, Marshawn had three goals. Postanow in the, those four games has five hall uh, has been scoring Smith, DeBrusque. They've all had goals Curtis Lazar um, in the Toronto game. If we're going to take, you know, a, a positive look at things right now, uh, how have you felt about that second line and the increase in how play there? Yeah. I mean, it's still, I, I still would have liked to see them get, a like some more reinforcements. I, I would have loved an Andrew Cop at the deadline. I know that it cost quite a bit um, for for the Rangers, but like an Andrew Cop at the deadline gives you a lot of options to like plug and play, and just with like his versatility and how dynamic he is. Um, that's why I would have loved to see it because like I do have outstanding concerns with. Eric Halla as your, your two C. Um, and, you know, I know that it's been going well, uh, you know, for the most part, but you're going to run into some tough matchups in the playoffs. And I do wonder if that will sort of come back to haunt the Bruins that they didn't give themselves some flexibility and more, more of like more options in the lineup that they can that they can shift pieces around come playoff time if they run into uh, like a tough matchup that's really making a difference over the course of a series. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if if like that that turned out to be an issue for the Bruins down the line. Do you think he kind of played himself into that spot though, and kind of took took that concern and made it lesser for, and then kind of spotlighted that the Bruins should go all in on defense and kind of take away that concern at least a little bit. Yeah, I think it was it was twofold. Like he he, he was you know pl- proving to be worthy of hanging on to that spot for a little bit, but I also think that the emergence of like a very solid third line that is working and that they they probably are not going to look to break up anytime soon that that gives you like a strong top nine. Like even if even if you're not super sold on Halla at two C, uh, like having insurance behind that second line, a third line that you can trust, I think made it a little bit easier for them to justify not going out and paying 
uh, exorbitant prices for for you know marginal help uh, at at forward. Yeah, the uh, the emergence of Trent Frederick has you know something that I don't really think any of us really you know saw coming uh, over the last few months. He, the confidence and the you know the speed and just everything about his game has kind of changed the last month and a half, two months. So that does help. And you know having Lindholm and McAvoy and Grizzlick back there and, and Riley if he's in you know, being able to push the pace um, from the from the defensive zone helps the offense as well, right? So Lindholm wasn't just a defensive addition. You know, he does help the offense uh, in transition. But um, <clears throat> I had, sorry, I'm choking on something. Scott, I know you, you know the question I'm about to ask. It's probably the biggest question people will ever be asked in his life. So before I get yeah, to that. Go, go, go for it. <coughs> All right. I'm dying over here. Pete, uh, I've been meaning to ask you this. So about a year ago, maybe more, okay, Um mm-hmm. You know, I got a little excited when I saw the 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 leak of the Bruins reverse retro jerseys, and it was it was by none other than than Pete Blackburn. And I think uh, you know, a few months later, maybe like six months later, I see this 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 fan concept. On, so you're very credible, and I see this fan concept online of you know McAvoy and Pashnak in these these Neely Bork era modernized jerseys, and and I think you quote tweeted it, and you gave sideways eyes, or there was something that you might think there's there's something in the works. I don't want to get you in trouble at all. But is there a possibility that there's some some smoke to that fire? I I was told about like a year, a year and a half ago, um, around the time that those reverse retros came out, that they were going to be a precursor to a jersey, a, a primary jersey uh, swap, where they're going to go back to the '80s look full time with the reverse retro as a third. And I haven't, I haven't heard like an update on that, but it was from somebody that I trust. And they did say that it was coming eventually. My, my theory is that ahead of the 2024 centennial season, they're going to make the Jersey swap and they're going to change back to the eighties look permanently, which I would be ecstatic about because I think that that's the best look that the Bruins have ever had. By the way, Pete, Brian has been talking about this since he <laughs> posted it. Like, it comes up all, all the time. We actually have, like, a small fashion segment at the end of, of certain podcasts, most podcasts, because Brian has opinions about this. Uh, even Scott, too, and I just kind of sit here and listen to I'm like, Look, I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with uniforms. I always have been since I was a kid with the Mighty Ducks jerseys. Like, I just, you know, and that's, by the way, I was telling Scott earlier, that's the last, you know, team that has to, you know, change. Everybody in the league has good uniforms right now. The Flames fixed theirs. The Senators fixed theirs. Now it's just the Ducks. And if the Bruins, who I think already have a top 10 uniform, even switching to the Black Sox, if they go to the 80s, I mean, they're alone at the top of the mountain. So, you know, when I saw that, Pete, I, I got a little, you know, a little excited and I just wanted to see some affirmation. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that would make sense. The centennial season would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't don't take my word fully on it, but that's what I was told. And I do think that it would make sense because with the centennial season, a lot of teams like to kind of revisit the history a little bit. Um, and it just seems like now, too, a lot of teams are going back to older looks rather than like coming up with something new. They're either like putting a spin on an old look, like the reverse retro stuff, or they're just permanently reverting back to a better a better jersey because nostalgia is all the rage right now yeah it's pretty sad nostalgia is like the 90s now which is kind of scary but yeah i mean the canadians they must have been in like 
Alcatraz or something because for their centennial season, they went to those prison break uniforms. So that was a pretty brutal. Well, yeah. the, now the Montreal's reverse retro next year is going to be Expos themed, which that is going to rock. That's going to look amazing. They're going to go with the uh, the Expos color scheme. Are the Bruins bringing the, uh, the Pooh Bear back? What do we think? A white Pooh Bear maybe? I, I would have a hard time believing that Cam Neely would sign off on a Pooh Bear <laughs> reverse retro. I don't know what they're going to do, but I just I think that, that Cam Neely, I cannot imagine him just being like, yeah, let's bring that back. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, all right, well, did anybody have anything for, uh, for Pete before we let him go? He's given us about 45 minutes of his time. Yeah, no, I was – if we had time, I was going to – get uh get in some oscars talk but uh yeah we won't keep pete any longer we won't uh bore our listeners with that but i will say that recommend uh the the brunch episode after the oscars uh <laughs> pete pete and dj really get right into the whole will smith thing right off the yeah, top so he's no waiting for for our takes on that <laughs> all right well that's pete blackburn you can follow his coverage all things nhl for for bally sports and uh we appreciate you taking the time pete Absolutely. Thank you for having me.